Good morning. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 8. And while you're doing that, uh, think about something for Bible class this morning. In the very first song we sang, we talked about worshiping him in righteousness. And we're going to talk about righteousness in, uh, in our Bible classes this morning as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself what that means to worship in righteousness and see how that plays into our text. Back in uh, the history of our country, it's kind of weird to have to say that now, but it was only back in the 70s, we had an incident called Watergate. And there were a lot of things that went on in that, uh, that particular instance. In fact, it was a rather a time of national disgrace for this country. But back long, long, long before that, there was another Watergate incident. But it was a time of very special significance, not national disgrace. The Jews had a, a gate called the Watergate as you entered Jerusalem. And it was one of the greatest national revivals, as far as I can tell, that the Jews ever experienced around that particular location. As a matter of fact, I think if our nation went back and looked at what took place there, we could experience another Watergate with a better emphasis, more spiritual, and learn some things from them. There have been some interesting revivals when you read through the history of Christianity. And um, I kind of got a little buzz on that from some reading I was doing and thought I, I really would like to pursue that a little bit more. But I found out that uh, when people got serious about revivals, what they've done is to try to turn back to the word of God, break down a lot of silly traditions that have been holding them back, and then take from there and hold up the church of the Lord in front of the word and try to be what God called them to be. There are a couple of things I've noticed so far about these revivals. They have a couple of elements in common with them. One of them is that there is a uh, proclamation of the word. Being empowered by a strong return to the word of God, to really emphasize that, really look at that. And it's kind of uh, impressive to say that on the one hand, because on the other hand, in in our society today, not just in this country, but in our society, there seems to be uh, a desire to de-emphasize the word of God. Let's have less of that as we worship. Let's, let's emphasize more of the other elements of worshiping God and not so much just the preaching aspect of it. And I think what we need to do is understand that all the elements that we use in worshiping God are very important. And you, you really don't de-emphasize any of them. You make sure you hold them all up in a strong way. I don't think there's ever been a strong revival, a, a new renewed emphasis toward God without having an empowering through the word of God by emphasizing that. The second thing they had uh, that went along with revivals is the idea of the consecration of the hearers. That determination on their part, the people who said, we're going to do what the word of God is challenging us to do. We're not going to think about it. We're not just going to pray about it. We're going to do it. He's called us to action. And that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. And my emphasis this morning is just really going to be on the first eight verses. And I'd like to believe that after we look at these verses a little bit, maybe it will help us to uh, have more of a part in letting history repeat itself. Maybe we can have another great revival in this country to see more of an emphasis on the Word of God rather than what we seem to be doing now before it's too late. Maybe we can see more of a revival within this church. To look and see, okay, this is where we are, but there's room for improvement. 
What can we do to be called deeper into the word of God and deeper into the actions that he would have us to do on behalf of this community, on behalf of of the other believers in this city? And the third aspect of that, I think, would be to realize how much of a revival we need within our homes, within our families. I mean, all you have to do is look around and see how the families are crumbling through uh, divorce and, and all the other problems, the immorality and things that are going on. And to realize our, our homes, our families need help. So maybe we can learn a few things from Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8 this morning, and take that and, and apply that on several different levels and see what that does for us. First thing I'd like to do, though, is kind of show you some things as we get into the text and talk about the foundation of revival as it's occurring here. By the time we get to chapter 8, the reconstruction of the wall is, is finished. And really, they they had finished that up back in chapter 6. And the Bible says they completed the wall in 52 days. I don't know if that was uh, putting every single brick in place or getting the most significant parts of the wall that really needed it. Uh, But the Bible says they had completed the task in 52 days. The wall, as far as the main body of work, is completed. Now what do we do? Chapter 7, Nehemiah kind of gets Jerusalem in order, and we get, got a chance to look at some of that. And by the time we get to chapter 8 now, he's wise enough to understand that the moment of the greatest peril sometimes comes after the moment of the greatest achievement. We got it completed. This is what we set out to do, and we did that. Now what? And, and you look through the scriptures, and you can see examples of that happening. Uh, Joshua fights the battle of Jericho, and very next week, if you will, there's the Battle of Ai, and they didn't do that because they kind of fell down on the job a little bit with some other things. You, you watch uh, Elijah, his battle at Mount Carmel, that great, incredible spiritual mountain. 24 hours later, he's down in a valley, a valley of depression, and he's asking the Lord to take his life. You watch Jonah hold probably the greatest evangelistic campaign for a city that you could read about in the Bible. The whole city of Nineveh turns back to God. And then after that's accomplished, he sits back and thinks, I really didn't want God to save all those pagans. What was I thinking? So, you know, it's a, you've got the achievement, but now what? And maybe missing the whole purpose and all the things that go behind that. But they seem to get their spiritual defenses down because they've accomplished something. And the devil loves to see that. He loves to see us get our spiritual defenses down. And enjoy the moment that, well, you know, here's some material benefits. Lose the spiritual focus a little bit. Jerusalem, and uh, when you look in verse 7 here, is well-ordered. And, and they're, in, they're in good shape when you, when you look at all of this. They're, they're well-governed. They're well-organized. They're well-defended. Everything on the outside looks good. But Nehemiah is a good leader. He's prudent enough to realize uh, there's a spiritual vacuum that's still going on within the city among God's people. And just because the wall is finished doesn't mean that the work is done. And he doesn't want them to get what uh, one person termed a monument mentality. I like that phrase, and and I looked into that a little bit more. And it's the idea of, uh, you know, you you get something built physically, and you look at that, and you're kind of impressed with it, and you sit back, and and you rest on your laurels a little bit, you know, and say, well, you know, that's, that's good stuff. It means keep going. There's more to do because you've built something, not to stop because you've built something. And so he doesn't let them get that monument mentality. Having a proper superstructure 
doesn't guarantee that there's life within that. And Nehemiah sees that. We know that's true. Uh, You can have the finest house in the neighborhood. It doesn't mean there's a good family inside, does it? Could mean there are a lot of problems. The finest church building in the city doesn't mean that there's real spiritual life that God's looking for. The kind that the people really need. So superstructures don't really mean life as such. But sometimes we fall victim to that monument mentality. Look how impressive this is. That's got to be pleasing. And Nehemiah looked within, not just without. And it was important for the people to realize their strength is not in their building. It's not in their structure. Their strength is in their God. And that's where he wants their focus to be. And if they don't have some kind of a revival, they're going to put confidence in brick and not in God. And so he's going to look into that matter. And he realizes the people are also ripe for a fresh spiritual invasion. It could be a bad one from without, or we can have a good one from within. It's our choice. So I like what he does. The other thing that's brought up and that you look at is he's uh, terming for this idea of revival here. It's not a time for conference. It's a time for a convention. A conference is when people come together and they, uh, they have a discussion and they're talking. Conventions, when they come together and realize uh, the time for talking is over, it's time to make a decision, take some action. And Nehemiah knows it's time to take action and go from here. So we learn something else about the man I think that is really impressive. Apparently, he's a fantastic governor. He's quite a diplomat. He's a motivator. He's good at seeing problems, finding the solutions for them. But All that said, he realizes he's not the best man to be the revivalist in this bunch. And so he calls on Ezra. And I think that's impressive to be able to see you've got all these talents, but there's one other thing that somebody else can do better for you and better for the people, and you step back and let that happen. John steps back and he lets Jesus come to the forefront. Barnabas steps back and he lets Paul come to the forefront to be what God had called him to be. And Nehemiah steps to the background, and he lets Ezra come up there. Now, Ezra had been in the city for several years, some 13 years before Nehemiah had ever gotten there. And there's a lot of conjecture about maybe what he was doing, what was going on in the meantime. We don't even read about him in the book of Nehemiah up until this point. Have no idea what was going on. I... I think it's safe to say he probably endorsed the work and he wanted all that was going on with that to, to be accomplished and be, uh, be taken care of. He's a scribe. He's a teacher of the law. And he's the man, not Nehemiah, who's the most qualified at this particular moment to initiate this revival. And so Nehemiah turns the reins over to Ezra. And it's good to watch how they work together. He doesn't mind playing second fiddle because it's the task that's the most important not the notoriety. And, and I think it's good to emphasize that. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard in our day and age for people to realize that. Okay, you've got some things you can do, but you're not the best one at this time. There's somebody else. Help each other out and do that and go from there. So the people come together, and they're going to listen to Ezra. And it's a national revival that goes on at Watergate. Second thing I want to do I want to touch on three ingredients that are in this text that are needed for revival. Now, there probably are more that you can look at, but these three I know you have to have in order for good revival to take place. 
When you look at verses 1 and 2, you realize there needs to be a proper hungering for the word of God. All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then Ezra, the priest, watch this, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. It's an important time in Israel. They're, they have what uh, the Feast of Trumpets and some other things that are going on. So there are a lot of people in the area. But it's a return to the Word. It's a return to the Scriptures for spiritual guidance. It's not a token Scripture reading. It's a matter of saying we need this to help guide us as we worship God as we get back to Him. To, to just look at it emotionally is not enough. We need to look and see what God says so that we realize we really do need to do better. And we can, and God's word will help us do that. Revivals in the scriptures, at least when you read about them, have never really been fueled by emotion. They're fueled by the word of God. That's what empowers them. A spiritual revival is going back and realizing the authority of God's word. There are some emotional responses when Josiah reads the word of God and he tears his garments and realizes, goodness, we need to get back to this. But it's the word of God that they turn to. I think there's a nice parallel between what was going on then and what's going on in our country now. There was a famine, and it was a spiritual famine. The difference between then and what's going on in our country, I think, is that our nation's famine is voluntary. We're starved for God's word because we've chosen to be starved. Theirs was compulsory because of the captivity that took place. Amos would say in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, But of hearing the words of the Lord, they shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And when the people were taken into captivity for the first time, they were forced away from the word of God by their captors. God would reveal himself through people like Daniel and Ezekiel while they were in captivity, but they didn't have the whole word really for the the mass of people like they needed It seemed like it was just small groups of them. It's interesting for us to consider that there are probably more more copies of the scriptures among our church members than there are in some large cities outside of our country in the world. That's an interesting consideration, isn't it? Some of those cities might even be in the millions. And yet think about how many copies of the scriptures we have. And we're ignorant of God's word. We get ignorant of God's word because we don't take the time to just be in it. It's not because we're forced away. We just don't spend the time in it that we need to. There was a story that I heard. I heard it recently and then I'd heard it before that I just like thinking about that. The person who'd been in Russia, and I can't remember all the details for it. I don't want to go into all of it. But the gist of the story was person who had been in Russia, left their Bible, or thought they had lost it, put out a, a message for that. They got their Bible back like two years later, and the only reason it took so long was some people had found that Bible, and they hand-copied it so that they could have a copy of the Bible. They couldn't get a hold of one. 
And the person got their Bible back. When there's a hungering for the word of God, it makes all the difference in the world. And I don't think there's going to be a national revival toward God's word until there's that full impact upon God's people. And the people who claim to follow God to say, we need God's word more than anything. 1 Peter 2 and verse 2 says that we're to long for the word of God like, like a babe longs for pure milk from its mother. That's what we need to feed on to nourish ourselves by. I ran across an old couplet somebody had written. I, it's unknown. These hath God married and no man shall part. Dust on the Bible and drought in the heart. When you're away from God's word, don't be surprised if you have spiritual drought and spiritual famine. Maybe their hunger and their desire, maybe it helps them turn into the, have the first nursery school because the men, the women, and all who can understand are brought there. What are they doing with the kids? Somebody's watching because they don't need that distraction. They need the focus on God's word. What is he saying to us and why? Verse 2, men, women, all who can understand. I want you to notice the second thing in verses 3 through 6. There's a proper honoring of the word of God. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate. Look at this. From early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who can understand. I, you know, I don't think any of the women said, i got to go check on the kids. All these people are present. And they were all attentive to the word of the law. They're paying attention. They're not texting. They're not writing notes. They're not checking who's here. You know, oh, I hadn't seen him in a few days. They're listening to the word being read. And they're listening to the word being read from daybreak till about noon. That's a long time. And watch the response of the people. They're standing. You know, they're they're worshiping. But they showed a reverence for God's word. And I think sometimes that's too lacking in our assemblies. We get to sit on padded pews. And sometimes we have a tough time paying attention. Psalm 56 verse 4 says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The more I understand the power that God's word gives to me, and the more I'm strengthened by that and focused on that, I really don't worry about anything else that's going on around me. I'll feed on God's word and be taken care of. Have you ever noticed that sometimes we get a lot more silent during prayer than we do during scripture reading? Uh, You know, when the the scriptures are being read, you know, I've I've seen at times where uh, it kind of seems like you're in the middle of a bus terminal. You know, all the noises going on and different things. And, you know, the scripture's being read. And one last time to say something to somebody. And I've been just as guilty of it as others have. But when the prayer time comes, all of a sudden, you know, we put our heads down. Books are closed. And we dutifully, you know, do that. I don't know if we're more focused on, on the prayer than we are the scripture. We might be just doing that thinking about other things that are going on. But I'm just saying the way it looks on the outside sometimes isn't too impressive. The reverence doesn't seem to be there or doesn't look like it is. And it's amazing how many people, men, women, children, show up and they come. We're going to to be with God's people, to study from God's word, to worship our God, but we don't have God's word with us. 
They don't even bother bringing a copy with them. Now, I have learned to accommodate myself to the fact that electronic devices with a, with a copy of the Bible on them, that's okay. You know, you don't have to have the leather-bound thing to say he's officially got a Bible. You don't have to do that. But still, the idea of not having a Bible, you know, and, and I'm not trying to say carry your Bible around and it's going to look like you've got some kind of a spiritual good luck charm. It's not a religious talisman. You know, if, if you're just going to bring it for that, you might as well leave it at home and let it collect dust. I'm saying to use it, to benefit from it, to get something out of it. I mean, I, I hope you're kind of reading down through the verses uh, that I've got for the text here as I'm going through and explaining some thoughts from them. But to be a professed Christian who loves the word and not have one, that's really kind of confusing to me. Yeah, but we got the overheads. They show us the scriptures. Yeah, but, you know, when you finish that with that one, there might be another one to come along afterwards that we don't have up there. There are just so many other things to look at, but we need to have the word of God with us. I think they had two reactions that are particularly interesting here in this text. One is their lack of time consciousness. I really do think that we're a very clock-eyed people. Ezra reads the law from daybreak till noon. The people are standing. They're listening for five to six hours. The book says they listen attentively. And sometimes we look at it and say, you know, if the sermon goes too long or the Lord's Supper goes too long or the prayers go too long, you know, that's just going to mess us all up. I mean, I understand. We've got two services and we've got a time frame. But there's a principle here, I think, that's still at work, that's still good for us. The main areas that we need to, to engage God and to be engaged by God and to be engaged as God's people, time is a good element to use. And invariably, I think we get back to paying attention to the clock sometimes because we're just too selfish. Take the word, look at the watch secondhand at the same time. It's hard to do both, isn't it? Focus on the word and let God speak to you. Yeah, but it might be difficult to come back in the evening. Might be too tired if we do that. You know, just put it all together for five or six hours and let's see what happens sometime. Just go ahead and do it that way. Sometimes we get too wrapped up in our schedules and the American mindset that we have is, you know, we, we take a few extra minutes. We're just going to mess up everything and we don't want to do that. I know the days of Nehemiah are gone and we can't get back all of that. You know, we're not going to do anything for five or six straight hours as a church, but it makes you wonder who has changed, the times, the people, or both. The other thing I noticed that they did that's pretty impressive is they responded as the word convicted them. The people will say, amen. You know, I've, people have come up and said, it's all I could do to keep myself from saying amen today. And I ask them, why didn't you? Go for it. You know, the ladies particularly say, well, I, you know, I don't know if I can do that. You can do that. The people, the men, the women, and all who could understand said Amen. The other thing I ask them is, you know, just what stops you? Go for it. Uh, I wanted to borrow one preacher's phrase, but I didn't want to offend Ron and Christy Bland. He said, sometimes it's like the bland leading the bland, the way we do things. And, and I don't want us to be known for that. And I don't want us to be a part of, of having services like that. We do need a balance. Uh, we need our Bibles. We need to put in the time we need to to worship God. 
And the people didn't have a time consciousness. They said amen because they liked to hear the word of God. John 17 verse 17 says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And I need all the truth I can get in my life. Third thing I want you to notice is they had a proper handling of the word. Verses 7 and 8. It says that uh, you have all these men listed there and they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. I like that. We're going to explain the word and people say, well, it's time for me to go. And they just go on out the door. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. It's really very simple what they did and, and how that took place there. They instructed the people and then they explained what the word was saying. And then they made it practical for their daily living. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 tells Timothy the preacher, Do your best to present yourself to God as an approved worker, one who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of God. You spend time studying it, you spend time understanding it in your mind, then you spend time explaining it so that people benefit from it and they know how to apply it to their lives. They read from the original, which in this case was the Hebrew. They made it clear. The footnote on my Bible says they translated it. What does that mean? You've got people who had been living over in Babylonia. They'd taken on the Chaldean culture. They'd learned a whole new language and lifestyle. They'd probably forgotten a lot of their own language. And especially going back to the Hebrew, and then you're going to have some mixture of Aramaic coming in as the time goes by. And I'm not sure about all those things, how they came into play. But step three says somebody made it clear to them what God was trying to communicate so that the people understood it in their own tongue. And they were able to say amen to that. You know, an impressive understanding of the scriptures in its own language doesn't make you a good teacher. We've had some preachers who could just, they could just quote, boy, verse after verse and whole chapters and never explain what's in there. And you finish up later on and say, boy, he was deep. I heard an old Texas phrase. It said, you know, uh, just because it's muddy doesn't mean the water's deep sometimes these guys aren't deep they're just muddy they're not making it clear and so you look at what's going on here they're making it clear the word of god paul says in second timothy 3 in verses 16 and 17 is profitable for correction for reproof and all those other things why so that the man of god may be adequate equipped for every good work so that you know what to do and how to do that And you'll get the reaction of the people down in verses 9 through 12. They're weeping because they've been convicted. The words expose how they had not lived consistently with what God wanted. And they've learned from the scriptures, God hasn't left you. He's got his arms open wide and he still wants you. But you need to do it on his terms. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have laid up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need more and more of the word laid up in our heart. Teach us more of it. Explain more of it to us. It doesn't sound like there was anything dull. It sounds like they had a revival going. Something they hadn't felt there in generations. They had a national joy again. And that's what Nehemiah was after. Not building a wall. Let me give you three quick insights. And we'll end it. Number one, the word supplies the completion your life lacks. 
You know, you can have a monument mentality. You can get all wrapped up in the next promotion, the next sale, and personal achievement, all those other things, but you can neglect your spiritual dimension and you're in trouble. And the word will complete that for you. You may think your house is in order because you've got a good house, you've got a nice automobile, and you've got all these other things that are going on. But then you're too tired because you've worked hard all week and you can't make it to church services or you can't make it to Bible study or you don't want to be involved in anything else because of the time factor. James 1 verse 21 says, Receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. You and I have a soul and we can't neglect it. Otherwise, there's going to be a famine. And you end up with a shell of a superstructure and nothing within. Number two, the word will supply the conviction your life needs. And that happened in Nehemiah's day. The people were convicted. And it can happen again in our country, in our society, in our church, in our homes. If we take our discipleship seriously, where do we go with that? Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through all the spiritual cosmetics. It exposes us for what we really are and, and who we really are living like. and shows us what we're lacking. and shows us what we need to do to return, how far we've grown from God and what we need to do to get closer to him. And people say, I don't feel as close to God as I used to. Who moved? Get back to his word. And thirdly, the word will supply the celebration your life wants. You know, joy in church is a good thing. It's not based on emotions. The emotions are a reflection of what we've learned and what we are in our relationship with God and with one another. But I think sometimes the world sees us in a way that uh, is kind of divorced from reality. We say one thing and show something else. Joy is a product of a relationship with God. And that helps me deal with reality of whatever my circumstances are. And we've had some rough circumstances in the last few months. But God will help you with those. Some of us are trying to have a relationship with God, and he's the one doing all the listening. And that's not good. Ezekiel 33, beginning verse 30, says, As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you, by the walls, at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. And that's a prophet trying to tell them before they go into captivity, or while they're in captivity, this is why it happened, and if you don't straighten up, it's going to get worse. You need to listen to God's word. In every revival, there are two things. There's proclamation of the word, consecration of the hearers. I've tried to preach the word this morning, and now it's your turn. I hope we can ask God this week to reveal his will even more to us through his word and through those who study and teach it and share it with us. That we can ask God to realize that there are many who have never heard his word in this land, 
And we're blessed to have so many Bibles. Please help us open them more and do something good with them and share those. To give us more of a hunger and desire and reverence for his word in our lives. Allow it to convict us and complete us so that we can celebrate the joy that really does make a difference. It's fantastic being a Christian, isn't it? It's awesome. And I want to share that with a few folks. So let's see this week if we can humble ourselves before the word of God. Listen as he calls us into a relationship with him. When he says that you need to be baptized, you need to be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. Why is he doing that? Because he wants his arms around us. And listen to him as he calls us into a deeper relationship with him as a disciple. There are still millions who have not heard. Would you make sure they get a chance to listen? Hear the sweet words of Jesus say, Come unto me, I am the way. He is, and we'll help you with that in any way we can. And all you have to do is come while we stand and while we sing.